This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. What will the Biden administration mean for Canada's oil and gas sector, for Canadian exporters, for tech companies and startups? If the Republicans hold the Senate, could there be an upside for Canada in legislative gridlock? On this episode, We'll continue the discussion with our expert panel about what might follow a chaotic presidential transition as the pandemic's second wave sweeps across America. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's our episode, South of the Border, Part 2. On our last episode, we brought you the first part of a panel discussion about what developments in American politics might mean for Canada. On this episode, we'll hear the rest of that conversation, which was recorded on November the 10th. You'll hear from five of my McCarthy-Tetro colleagues. The Honorable Jean Charest, former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, former Premier of Quebec, and a partner and strategic advisor at McCarthy-Tetro. Matthew Cumming, the managing partner of our firm's New York City office. Martha Harrison, a partner in McCarthy Tatro's International Trade and Investment Law Group. Awi Sinha, a partner in our litigation group and head of the firm's government law and political risk team. And Aliyah Ramji, a partner at McCarthy Tatro and co-founder of MT Ventures, a division of the firm that delivers tailored legal and strategic advice to high potential businesses in the startup phase. To moderate the discussion, we brought in a ringer, Allison Smith, a longtime broadcast journalist who was CBC TV's Washington correspondent between 2005 and 2009. Here's Allison. So let's uh, let's um, uh, focus down on some of the nitty gritty now, Matthew. I want to I want to ask you talk about um, your particular expertise in investment and private equity and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, certainly the um, stock markets, and that's by no means a measure of, uh, you know, it's a measure of some things, but not of others, shall I put it that way, um, reacted favorably to the Biden win and the very hopeful news to this week about a, a possible COVID vaccine. Um, first, an overview of sort of the current state of cross-border investment and deal flow between Canada, the U.S., and how a Biden presidency might affect that. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Allison. So, you know, the biggest thing for investors and markets is certainty and predictability, right? Uncertainty brings risk and and risk inhibits investment. So when we, you know, when we step back, it's quite remarkable how well the markets have generally held up and and M&A and transactions generally have held up over the last seven months, given it is one of the most uncertain periods we've had in, in, in recent history. Uh, to date this year, the, the level of overall M&A activity in Canada is actually slightly higher than it was the year before. Private equity transactions and cross-border transactions are, are a bit down, but you know, in, in the big picture, they've, they've held up reasonably well and, and remain steady. And 
you know, there are a few reasons for that. I'd say, first of all, there, there's a number of industries that really haven't been significantly impacted by the pandemic or in some cases have even thrived as a result of it. I'm thinking of tech and financial services, uh, renewable energy. There's been quite significant in, uh, activity in each of those industries. Uh, and when you contrast them to other, you know, industries like hospitality or leisure or retail and oil and gas that have, have been hit hard, it's, it's two different worlds, really. Um, in, in industries that have been negatively impacted, like those, you know, we are starting to see increasing activity relating to distressed or opportunistic situations. You know, amazingly, more new money has been raised by Canadian private equity funds in the nine months, the first nine months of 2020, than in any previous 12-month period in history. And, and a big proportion of that money is being allocated to special situations funds, which are really looking for these distressed and opportunistic acquisitions coming out of this, you know, very challenging period. And we're also seeing strategic players who are faring just fine during all this, who are looking for potential acquisitions of of other players who are who are struggling more and see a good opportunity to 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 add another company into their mix. Um, so, you know, our expectation is that distressed activity will continue, uh, but it will depend in large part on the pandemic and how it plays out. Uh, you know, we all saw the, the, the good news of a potential vaccine, and depending on the timing of that uh, and, and also stimulus spending will really impact that. The, the third reason, you know, we still see lots of activity is there has been a real impact on some industries as a result of the pandemic that is that has led to a lot of change. And I think of something like retail, our retail group, uh, you know, we, we've seen a real accelerated shift to e-commerce. And as part of that, we see a lot of companies who are looking to enhance their supply chain, their distribution, their technology capabilities through acquisitions uh, and, and, and other means. So lots of activity generally, uh, you know, of course, despite all of that, we're really not out of the pandemic woods yet. Uh, many businesses in the U.S. and Canada remain in limbo. Um, you know, COVID is continuing to soar uh, across North America in, in, in the short term at least. And as, as Monsieur Charest mentioned, uh, there, there has not been another Relief Act passed yet, and there, there's been deadlock around doing that. Uh, you know, state and local tax revenues have dropped precipitously in, in the states. So lots and lots of risks, obviously, still in the U.S. and Canada. Stepping back now to the election again, where does that leave us? Uh, as you mentioned, Allison, you know the markets reacted uh, very, very positively to the result, and I'd say that's a, you know, it's a, it's reacting to a Biden win, but with a Senate that is unlikely at this point uh, to be controlled by the Democrats. And you know, as a at a political level, that what that's likely to create is is legislative gridlock. Um, and, and, you know, we would expect the Senate to block or inhibit a lot of the fundamental policy proposals of the Democrats, including, you know, tax increases, uh, spending programs and, and tougher regulations. And, you know, putting aside the, the political views on, on that, gridlock can be quite attractive to investors because it really brings certainty of, of the continued status quo as opposed to, you know, change, which is unknown and un uncertain. So is from a from a transactional standpoint, we would expect the current outcome uh, to be fairly positive on on cross-border activity. Uh, just hitting on a few specific points, 
you know, foreign investment under under Trump, the there was legislation enacted during the Trump presidency that had explicitly allowed CFIUS to recommend that a deal be blocked on personal data concerns and and you know the review of Chinese inbound transactions was was certainly a, a real focus under the Trump administration. We don't yet know how a Biden administration will evolve on on that, but we wouldn't expect it to be significantly different. Uh, you know, it's possible they do it a bit more quietly and maybe with a bit more predictability in respect of specific transactions, which you know may slightly reduce the chill on on Chinese inbound transactions into the U.S. But you know, again, we do expect data protection to continue to be a real issue uh, and, and national security concern. Uh, for private equity, you know, the Biden plan to raise U.S. corporate taxes to 28%, uh, you know, it, it would decrease corporate cash flows, which would would negatively impact uh, portfolio companies held by private equity funds. And at the same time, uh, Biden has proposed an increase to the long-term capital gains tax rate, uh, which would likely impact private equity funds, carried interest structure and, and impact how they structure deals. But again, with without a Democrat-controlled Senate, you know, those changes are, are unlikely to come through. So we're, you know, at, at this point, we're not expecting those to, to come to pass. In terms of the credit markets, you know, in recent weeks and months, uh, we've seen just a huge number of borrowers going and, and tapping funds while they were there. We've seen lots of uh, you know, leveraged acquisitions. We've seen lots of dividend recapitalizations. At, you know, given the election results and, and the vaccine news, we're, we're still seeing a, quite a friendly borrowing market right now and don't expect that to change in, in the short term. And, and the last point I would touch on is, you know, Biden obviously campaigned on a, on a $2 trillion infrastructure plan for companies, including Canadian companies in the infrastructure industry who are active in the U.S., you know, there's obviously tons of opportunities there, but again, uh, that will likely be inhibited quite a bit by by the Senate. Uh, we we would expect that that uh, you know some sort of infrastructure spending plan could get through, but likely a, a lesser version of what was campaigned on. You you touched briefly, Matthew, on tech, and I want to open this up to uh, Aliyah to to talk about sort of tech specifically. Um, and the, the opportunities um, and, and the state of play uh, during a Biden presidency. Give us your sense. Thank you, Allison, and thank you for having me here. Um, I would say, you know, first we, we need to kind of socialize where Canada's tech industry is, and Canada is a hotbed for innovation right now. We have a very educated workforce and a welcoming and uh, uh, political and business climate right now. And, our, and, and just like our uh, trade economies, our tech economy is very much tied to um, the US. So in, in spurring innovation, I think uh, President-elect Biden favors using economic stimulus to spur innovation. And his platform suggests that his government would be a large investor in R&D. And that's what we haven't seen through the, through the Trump presidency. Uh, a Biden government would also be an active tech partner and comparatively tougher regulator than, than Trump was. Um, Biden's platform further suggests that he views infrastructure and technology spending as a means to achieving desired social policy goals. So, you know, we heard from Matt that there is a, 
uh, a desire to put in $2 trillion into infrastructure, and the same goes for tech. And so generally, I think that Biden and the Democrats was, would preserve or strengthen any existing regulations and introduce some new regulations to spur innovation. Um, I think uh, Biden would make the U.S. a more attractive jurisdiction for clean technology firms as a result of his promise of a clean energy revolution, which is probably going to be backed by federal dollars. In, in contrast to, to Trump, you know, Biden is not likely to cut regulations in the uh, automotive space um, to spur growth. Meanwhile, we saw in, in, the, in the first term for, for Trump, that Trump emphasized the reduction of regulations as his preferred tool to support industry. And so, you know, notably, he removed, you know, automotive and energy related regulations. I also think, you know, we, we should think about what Biden proposes to do in the venture capital space. His campaign proposed a $10 billion venture capital investment program for minority owned companies and to similarly increase funds available to women-owned firms. So I think there will be uh, a spurring of innovation because of the push for venture capital funds. Um, his, his campaign proposed the creation of an incubator network in partnership with historically black colleges and universities and small business development centers among other community institutions. So if that this venture capital funding works and this incubator network um, works, it, if this is successful, it means that there could be more competitive, attractive firms and attractive tech destinations beyond just the valley in the U.S. And so that's going to increase competition for Canadian firms at home, but also provide us with an opportunity to expand operations in previously untapped locations. One of the, one of the most important things I think we should focus on is that Biden promises to allocate a portion of $300 billion in innovation funding packages to breakthrough technology and R&D programs in support of U.S. competitiveness. So this funding would be available to industries and technologies, including 5G, AI, advanced materials, biotech, and clean tech, which are going to be very competitive with what Canada's uh, investing in right now in the space of AI and clean tech and biotech. So I, I can see a lot of competition growing between Canada and the U.S. But, I mean, competitiveness in, in the area of innovation is a great thing. And I think we'll push one another to push the boundaries of innovation. As you say, it's, it, competitiveness is one thing. I guess it's also competing for workers in that field, too. And, and immigration plays a part in that. Yeah, I think, I think we should definitely look at Biden's immigration policy, which is consistent with uh, the Democratic Party's norms of favoring high-skilled immigration. Um, I think he would expand the number of high-skilled visas available and reform uh, the temporary visas so they do not undermine wages. Um, Biden has also said that he would reverse the H-1B visa freeze um, and repeal the Trump travel ban and increase refugee admissions by 125,000. Uh, so this is where I think Canadian tech firms will and universities will likely lose out a little bit on attracting STEM talent because of Biden's open immigration policies. Trump's approach has benefited Canadian tech firms, according to a study from Georgetown University, uh, where it concluded that data strongly suggested that Canadian recruitment 
um, increased under the uh, American immigration policy and a lot of talent was brought to Canada at levels not seen uh, ever before the Trump presidency. And do you think Canada could lose those workers now if there were all those incentives in the U.S.? I think if you if you grow incentives in the U.S., we have the potential of losing workers. But I think over the last four years, we've uh, promoted ourselves to be a place that's very friendly and welcoming um, to business and 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 uh, and innovation. Okay. Um, there's a couple of more specific areas that I want to touch on, and then I want to also get back sort of into some of the um, broader sort of political considerations and all of this that are coming up in some of the questions we're getting from uh, some of you who are listening in. Um, let me first touch on climate because it's come up a couple of times. And um, Jean Charest, let me ask you, I mean, it's one area where many believe Canada and the United States will very early on be able to find some common space. It was something that was raised by Prime Minister Trudeau what do you think uh, that uh, policy area might look like now with the Biden administration and its relationship to Canada? Like the word that comes to mind is convergence. There's a convergence of views between the Biden administration and the Trudeau government on the issue of climate. So uh, President-elect uh, Biden has the power to sign back on to the Paris Climate Accord, which he said he will do and we expect he will do. And then Let's try to, you know, war game this a bit or map it out in terms of issues. He also said there's two big threats for Canada in this administration. One is by America, we talked about. But he also said he would cancel the Keystone XL uh, project. And, and what he would do, and he has the power to do it because it requires a presidential permit, as is the case for interconnection lines for electricity grids. So if you no presidential permit, no project. So he could just pull it which uh, President Trump did the day, first day he was elected, he gave it. The Obama administration did not want to give it. So, you know, he's retreating back to positions that he knows. On climate, there may be an opportunity here for Canada to package something with the Biden administration on dealing with climate issues that would say, well, here are a number of things that we can do together and, uh, and allow Keystone XL to continue as opposed to just cutting it off where thousands of jobs will, will be lost. Now, on more down, you know, very practical things also, Mr. Biden has made a commitment to uh, decarbonize his electrical grid by 2035, I believe. And, and the grid in the United States, which is very much state jurisdiction, is a, is, a, is a disaster. I mean, compared to what it is in Canada, it's in very bad shape. And he'd like to decarbonize it. Well, where is he gonna get the clean renewable energy to put into that grid, if not by large hydro coming from Canada. I'm thinking of Quebec in particular. And in Quebec, there's two projects that are out there in the public domain. There is one that's signed on with the uh, New England states, the, a line that goes through the state of Maine that's now contested by some people in the state of Maine. And there's another one with the state of New York. The other objective that uh, Mr. Biden is signing on is zero carbon emissions by 2050, which is the case for, for Canada. And the thing to keep in mind, though, is that you look at their uh, programs to stimulate the economy, both are taking the view that climate objectives should be rolled into the stimulus package, that they should be one and the same approach. And that's going to be very significant as we go ahead. Canada has not yet come out with its stimulus packages. We'll have an economic update in November by the Minister of Finance, Mrs. Freeland, and then budget in the, in the spring. 
But it, the government has clearly indicated that climate objectives and stimulus package are going to be one and the same, and the Biden administration is going to take the same view. So there's a convergence there, and if we're if we're intelligent about it, we can uh, we can take advantage of what he will be spending there and and work together on climate uh, on climate objectives. Um, you you mentioned a, a short time ago that you know trade negotiators hate it when you know sort oh. of other issues get rolled into the same but do you think then that keystone in spite of what biden says about the keystone pipeline that it could survive um if and, and in effect become a bit of a bargaining chip in a negotiation around other um other issues between the two countries canada is the country that supplies the united states with half of its imported oil now the challenge for us we're familiar with it we we are a big producer our only client is the United States. We're enclaved, and for we know about all the pipeline issues in Canada and their our ability to move uh, oil and gas to tide uh, water. But so we need the Americans do need it, and the oil that would be transported through Keystone goes to the Gulf of Mexico. It is then uh, going to go to uh, foreign markets, and so uh, objectively, there's a good reasons to do this, especially given the extraordinary efforts in Alberta to reduce the carbon intensity. Canada has a story to tell. We have a story to tell. My instinct, though, Allison, is that if we want to avoid that, and I think the American unions, for example, they're they're the ones that we should be talking to to get them on side to talk about the jobs that will be lost. If we packaged it with a concerted effort on climate and said, here are a number of things we can do together, chances are President Biden could say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm not going to pull the permit. I'm going to get something else in exchange and I'll get be big, better benefits from it by doing this deal with Canada than just pulling the permit on uh, Keystone XL. Um, I know that you've got uh, oil and gas uh, clients uh signed up and, and listening to all of this <laughs> have, have they got reason in alberta to be optimistic then well it's it's it and the alberta government's you know put 1.5 billion dollars into uh, that project in particular i think we just have to be very intelligent we've done it before allison look at the way we manage the uh renegotiations of nafta i mean uh, we canada did it fairly well we know how to we don't know enough let me put it this way it's not as though we know enough but we are we have in the past been able to deal with these situations by america let me sidetrack on by america i was premier in 0809 Prime Minister Harper uh, came to us, the provinces, I was chair of the Council of Federation, saying, give us a mandate to negotiate a, an agreement, a reciprocity agreement on government procurement. And he did. And we were able to work around the Buy America. So we can, but it requires discipline. It requires that we work very closely together. So it, it's doable. But uh, it, the time to start working on that is now. Now. I can see, Martha, I can see you nodding your head here. Did you want to comment on this? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, you know, in, very engaged in what Mr. Charest is saying, and obviously I, I agree with his commentary. I, I think that one of, an interesting strategy for Canada to take um, is for Canadian negotiators to understand this key environmental priority that the Biden administration will likely have and potentially use that as a leveraging tool to try and obtain some exemptions from the Biden Buy American program. Yeah. Um, Canada 
Canada has been successful in obtaining exemptions under similar programs through the U.S. before. And I think that it would be probably seen as a win for Canadian industry if we can take our priority on environmental stewardship and roll that into um, a leverage point that the Trudeau government uh, could use in potentially and arguably hopefully negotiating some exemptions to this Buy American program. Um, I, I want to take a look at some of the questions that have come in here, and, and this relates a little bit to um, trade negotiations, Martha. Is there a possibility that Kuzma would be reopened, in fact? I think that that's, uh, you know, from my perspective, that's unlikely. I, I think that for, you know, the, the, the signatories are, are relatively pleased with the outcome. And my experience is when you have multilateral uh, negotiations for a trade agreement, when everyone is kind of happy and kind of unhappy, you've probably struck the right balance uh, in terms of obligations and concessions. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there were some significant heavy lifts uh, on all sides of, of the negotiating table. Um, and primarily from, from a Canadian perspective, my view is that uh, there are some important uh, improvements on the CUSMA that I don't think Canada would be um, you know, willing to kind of go back to the negotiating table and revisit. And in particular, we've got a new digital trade chapter, we have a good regulatory practices chapter, um, and that, that regulatory practices chapter is designed to facilitate uh, trade uh, in goods between the country on the regulatory side. So, you know, a good that is manufactured in Canada and packaged in a particular way and manufactured to a particular standard, um, you know, is more easily tradable to Mexico and to the United States. And that's been very important, especially as we have been rolling out new programs under PPE trade. Um, you know, the, the old NAFTA to the, to the extent that it applied and then CUSMA uh, to the extent that it applies now, um, you know, those are the, these are important, um, you know, uh, treat, this is an important treaty for Canada to hang, hang on to. I don't anticipate it being renegotiated, but again, um, I, I think what, what we're seeing is the benefits of the goodwill that finally we were all able to demonstrate to one another um, in the context of the COSMA negotiations and the impact that that uh, process has had in particular on PPE distribution within the three countries. Mm. Um, this also placed one of the questions from um, people listening in and I, I know um, even just based on my own experience how difficult it is sometimes for Canada to um, uh, be seen in the United States, shall I put it that way? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we're not uh, we're not necessarily high on the agenda unless they think there's a cold front moving down from the north. Uh, so, one of the questions here is, and this relates to tariffs, uh, Martha. That given other priorities such as COVID, which is obviously a priority in both countries. When might Biden, a Biden administration, even get around to addressing some of those trade issues? I, so it, it's a good question. It, the answer is a little bit unclear at the moment. There, there has been some anecdotal, um, you know, descriptions uh, in the media, as I mentioned earlier, where there is some, there appears to be some momentum within the Democratic Party or certain um, sections of the Dem Democratic Party to push uh, Biden to review uh, and reconsider potentially the, the tariff applications um, sooner rather than later. But we don't know 
much more apart from that vague description. Um, I, I think that uh, in his in his platform that he's demonstrated uh, so far on what he intends to envision in his sort of first 100 days or first 90 days, the you know it, it is it is unlikely. My perspective, it is unlikely that there will be significant changes in those tariffs in the first 100 days, unless. Um, they, the Biden administration uh, determines that for other strategic reasons, they need to revisit the tariffs uh, immediately. Um, but we, we, we do, I, I would say that there would be at least a review of whether or not the national security risks that are, um, that are used as the meaning or the, the sort of the, the, the underlying theme behind the institution of those tariffs, there is potentially reason to suspect that the Biden administration would review that and potentially reject the notion that the tariffs should be initiated under the guise of uh, national security. Uh, and that's that's particularly the case because just uh, you know a few days ago, the WTO has now ruled that the initial tariffs that were instituted on Chinese imported goods were unlawful under WTO compliance rules. Um, and so because of that decision, and depending on where the Biden administration lands on its position on WTO at the beginning of the administration, there may be some motivation to revisit those tariffs sooner rather than later now, because they're facing a WTO decision that they're probably not gonna like. Mm. Um, again, this sort of relates a little bit to timing, and Avi, I want to come back to you. Um, this question comes from someone who says they've worked in government transitions in Canada, and from both the public service side and the political side, says, I know the existence of a consistent professional public service is critical for a successful transition. That's not necessarily the case in the best of times in the United States. Now we have an administration that isn't conceding the election and in fact firing high level officials. Um, this person is interested in the panel's view on how this will negatively impact the Biden administration, um, particularly in the middle of the pandemic. Crisis management is you, Howie. <laughs> yeah, well, my sophisticated high level uh, take is it ain't good. Um, <laughs> there's certainly uh, a couple of themes that can be tied together when we look at the structure and the integrity of the public service that will be left behind for transition. Uh, Mr. Charest talked about the change in tone that's coming from the Biden administration. Reflected the other way on that, of course, is the uh, increasingly agitated and um, uh, angry tone that's coming from the current administration focused on the election results. As I mentioned at the mo at the beginning, you know, as everybody knows, there's over a dozen lawsuits. There's the claims that the entire election was fraudulent, uh, a focus of uh, certainly the administration's energy on challenging the election results or creating um, uh, concern about the election results. Uh, and we saw last night a issuance from the um, head of the Department of Justice, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr, that there can be investigations into allegations of serious voter fraud uh, by the Department of Justice. All of that is indicating a tone that is focused very much not on either creating transitional policy or looking at making sure the cupboard is full for a Biden administration to come in. So the uh, lack of transition support that Mr. Charest mentioned will affect not only the readiness of the government they inherit, because it not only will not be a priority for the current administration 
but the current administration may actually take steps to make it less ready or controversial in terms of what they know about a potential Biden um, uh, platform coming in. And I do think that actually creates an opportunity a little bit for Canadian business to the point about not being seen in all of the areas that Martha and Matt and Ali were talking about in trade, in financial markets and in tech, where because we've had, whether you like them or not, policies in Canada for at least an administration and a little bit that echo what we expect from a Biden platform, there are areas in which Canadian industry has a bit of a running start combined with, while it's frustrating to the world, the reality the person who poses the question points out that there may not be the full uh, machinery of government beside the, uh, behind the ambitious plans and policy plans that a Biden administration may want to put in place right away. So they will have the job of both promulgating those policy agenda items and without much help in transition, making sure their government machinery is built up to support those. That could be an opportunity for a well-organized Canadian industry and government uh, to lend a helping hand because we've had the benefit of both for a little while. I don't want to put you on the spot, but are there particular sectors that you think should be paying attention to that? Yeah, we've gone over it before. Maybe there are a couple others I'll throw to map, but certainly climate rises to the top for a bunch of reasons. One, uh, it is, uh, you know, in an election where uh, Ali had pointed out some of the good changes that are coming for investment in innovation technology, but the war this time was not fought on people's position on Joe Biden's platform or Donald Trump's platform on innovation stimulus. One of the few issues that rises beyond the political and culture uh, issues that arguably drove the election is climate. That kind of falls into all of those categories and is going to be a major economic engine. So I think that seeing that that's going to come to the top of the platform, seeing that that's going to be an area where there has been uh, a decimation, arguably, of the capacity of the machinery of government to help, and seeing that we've had Canadian business that's been incentivized to think about creative green energy strategies in the last few years, then I think climate is certainly an area where uh, we can focus on that. And that will affect a number of different industries, retail, energy, um, oil and gas, et cetera. The, the harmonization of climate with the Biden policy perspective and the reality that that's going to be one of the arms of government that's been uh, the most gutted and left behind creates opportunity. Hmm. I, the other, I said so the other thing I, when I was preparing for this, um, I discovered that you, for those of us old enough to remember uh, Bush versus Gore <laughs> and the hanging chats, um, that transition didn't begin until the first week of December, that they, um, it was held back as well. Um, now, I don't recall the beginning of the Bush administration and how fast they were off the mark, but um, at, at the same time, I guess it's not unheard of for there to be um, some delays. Jean, do you want to talk about some of the politics of this? And what I'm the trans- administration is confronting now with this uncertainty? And obviously not just in terms of COVID, which is their primary domestic issue right now, but the broader domestic issues that they've got to think about before they think about anything beyond their borders. Well, let's, let's put COVID back into the context of the campaign. Had Americans been voting on the economy, all the polling, and God knows the pollsters have taken a real beating in this, but I believe this to be true. If the issue had been 
the economy, I think Mr. Trump had much better chances of winning. If the issue was only COVID, well then Mr. Biden and would have a... Now, Biden did what was expected. He linked both issues, as he should. As long as the COVID crisis is out there, our economy is suffering. We need to deal with it to get the economy up and going again. And so COVID is going to, and the second wave is overwhelming us, which means, and what we're seeing around us, by the way, in Ontario, Quebec, governments look as though they're improvising all over the world. It's not so much that they're improvising as that they're trying to figure out what they need to do to be able to contain this. And I sympathize with them because they're in a tough situation. So the COVID politics are going to be very important at a minimum. There needs to be coordination. There needs to be more cohesiveness. And Biden sent a very powerful message yesterday. He made a choice. He said to Americans, the first thing I'm going to do as president-elect is put together a COVID team. And I'm, what I'm telling you is this, if, and until we deal with this, our economy is not going to get up and going. And I think he, that's, he's totally right on that. On transition, well, typically there's two parts to transition in the American system. The first part is all the way up to the 20th of January. And then all of us who have dealt with American governments know that the first six months after the swearing in are still very tentative because they're putting their teams together. One interesting part of transition is with the choice that President Biden will make for his cabinet. Had he had a majority in the Senate, then the left wing of the Democratic Party would have had much more chances of getting uh, secretaries and in the cabinet. Now he's going to be held in check by Republicans who will want uh, more centrist people. So who knows? I'm, I'm guessing, Allison, if Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden may have a unique opportunity here to use this outcome to be much more centrist, reach out, rebuild relationships in Congress, which he's good at, he knows that business, and be more effective. And I think the key for him is to push expectations down to the lowest level possible. If he did that, if I were in their team, push it down to the floor and surprise people. He could name a few centrist Republicans to his government. And then, and then do a lot more than what people expect. So the transition can actually work for them if they're strategic about it. But it don't be under any illusions. We won't really know what this government is made of until June of 2021, as far as I, I'm concerned. Mm. Um, I want to ask each of you, um, as we sort of come to the closing part of this, what you're going to be watching for over the, the next um, weeks and couple of months. But I want to begin with you, Awi, because we just got a question about um, the, the waning days of the Trump presidency, if I can call it that, and it, what the likelihood is of Trump initiating a crisis overseas in a wag the dog scenario. Given the firing of the Secretary of Defense, one wonders if Trump is looking for a more compliant person in that role for a reason or whatever other kind of um, November, December surprise. <laughs> There's, um, that's a great question. There's, uh, and I'll answer it this way, there's, there's a concept uh, um, in political law, political science of the Overton window. And it's, a, it's an American concept, but it applies in a lot of political situations. The Overton window effectively is the range of political decisions that a leader can make and keep credibility. Uh, so you can sort of plot out what the most aggressive move on a particular issue will be uh, versus what the most dormant Beyond, under which action will be demanded by the populace. 
um, a, a clear learning of the Trump administration for years, regardless of your political stripe, uh, is de definitely that the Overton window has been breached. It has been shattered, um, broken open with baseball bat. So the ability to predict carefully and rationally with some level of comfort what's going to happen during the uh, quote-unquote lame duck period of the Trump presidency, I, I believe is zero. And, and I don't want to cop out of the question, nor do I want to suggest that I have uh, an abiding concern that a wag the dog scenario uh, involving international interests and safety of soldiers could actually be uh, on hand. I, I don't. That would be nothing more than speculation on, on my part or on speculation on the part of anybody who seeks to be a pundit on that. The problem for us and for America and for the world is sitting here trying to be rational about it. I cannot in good conscience rule it out, um, which is striking to me and, and creating cognitive dissonance in terms of being able to learn from folks like Mr. Charest and have a rational view about political prediction. I think it's tough to say that the likelihood is zero, uh, although I also think that the interest is in trying to find a way to undermine um, American uh, belief in a Biden presidency so that they can potentially look at next time and keep the power of their base intact. Yeah. Um, so in spite of that uncertainty, Martha, let me begin with you. And as we see the sort of emergence of a Biden administration over the next couple of months, what are you going to be watching for? I think that the the America first philosophy that President Trump in particular has been a real champion of uh, actually, as we've talked about today, does indeed have a lot in common with what is likely to be the current and future or near future democratic understanding of what is wrong uh, in the current international economic system. Um, and in fact, both parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, have actually favored, they've abandoned sort of traditional um, promotions of free trade in favor of what I, I would call more fair trade as opposed to free trade. Um, but that approach, um, I, my perspective is that approach, and I believe in many instances the data bears this out, does not in and of itself make the American worker um, better off or create industry that is more um, lively in the U.S. And so I think that on an evidence-based, from an evidence-based perspective, Biden uh, should be more practical about the issue of how the administration uh, considers new trade agreements and new negotiation opportunities with multilateral parties. I'm hopeful that the Biden administration takes a more arguably traditional approach to trade negotiation where there is a global view um, uh, and because even in the case of a bilateral agreement with the U.S., those bilateral agreements have spin-off effects that impact Canada. And so I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will evaluate all of its options and, and focus more on negotiations that offer the most value in terms of economic benefits for the U.S., which al almost always means more value for Canada, and mending relationships with allies who are a little bit sore 
um, from the what would argue arguably be knee-jerk trade uh, reactions from the Trump administration. So really what I'm looking for is more predictability and more transparency in trade matters. And I, I'm hopeful that that will be the case with an administration because Canadian trade policy is, is just so much richer when we have a partner in the U.S. on the trade side uh, that is easier to communicate with and easier to predict. Matthew, from your perspective in New York City, <laughs> the business beating heart, uh, what are you going to be watching for? Yeah, thanks, Allison. I mean, for me, it comes back to that certainty. And as much as Aoi correctly says, you know, theoretically anything could happen, I think there is a, a basic assumption underlying the market right now that as much as President Trump may seek challenges, that the process is going to unfold as we all would hope, and those challenges will be dealt with in courts. And then there will be, you know, whether it's transition or not, that it, it will unfold as it should. If and I think that's a very fair assumption. If if facts unfolded and that was not the case, uh, you know, that would be obviously create massive uncertainty in the markets. But uh, let's hope, and I, I don't expect that is the case. Right. Aliyah? Um, I think what I'm most interested in seeing is where the stimulus package goes and whether there's a stimulus package in the next 90 days or what economic stimulus we see right away through a, a new presidency and that that really interests me for a couple of reasons one Aoi you hit the nail on the head earlier where you said there may be gaps for a very long time where Canadian tech can really use this as an opportunity to fill those gaps and and to bring some of the the, the tech that we have and the R&D that we've been spending the last few years on into the American market where they don't have the, the opportunities right now. And then uh, where um, the U.S. is doubling down in certain areas of tech, how we can uh, re reinvigorate those areas in the Canadian market to remain competitive. Thank you. Jean, from the well, political perspective. Well, there's a lesson in humility for us again in this campaign. We know a lot about the United States because our vital interest is at play. But Allison, we don't know as much as we think we know. And uh, in this campaign, like the one of 2016, uh, the outcome wasn't what a lot of us had predicted. I thought it would be a decisive Biden victory. And I think there's some there's a signal for us in that we need to have a better understanding of what it is that motivates Americans. There's a lot of anger out there. And, uh, and we need to better understand it if we're going to successfully defend our, our interests. That being said, I think we're going to see more U.S. leadership on COVID, on the economy, uh, more American leadership on dealing with China, on dealing with Russia, and on dealing with climate. All of that is good news for Canada. Uh, Canada should be blitzing uh, the Americans as we did on Kusma, NAFTA, governors to pr premiers and the business community. We should be all out as we did. That's what worked for us in the past. We should do it again in the future. On the Buy America, we should be trying to get a reciprocity agreement as rapidly as possible. On Keystone, probably look at a grand bargain. What is the big deal that we could make with the Biden administration that would allow Keystone to happen and other things that meet American interests and our interests? And, uh, and on specific issues, I would pay attention to a few sectors, telecoms and big tech. 
both the Democrats and Republicans seem to be in some agreement that they need to deal with the monopoly of big tech. That could be the big issues of the next four years. And it's a bit under the radar now, but that the consequences of that would be important. I'm guessing that they're going to go after big tech in, this, uh, in the next four years. Finally, uh, uh, we didn't talk about it, but the Kamala Harris story is much bigger than what we think. First woman vice president, uh, she comes from uh, minorities. I think that's a big, bigger story, almost as big as Mr. Biden, very significant. And given the age gap, I mean, there's, uh, there's a very good story there that we should pay attention to. In the end, I think Mr. Biden will be more successful than what we think today, because he'll, he'll understand enough about his situation to play down expectations and reach across the aisle. Mm. Awi, final thought to you. Yeah, I think what I'll be watching for is the finality of stability. Um, that's uh, perhaps an obvious, but um, as various legal battles play out and are getting thrown out of court for lack of evidence or a realization that you know technical issues on vote counts uh, don't matter because the vote's been done and there's no evidence of voter fraud, uh, we'll edge closer and closer to finality over the next little while. And what I'll be watching for is whether uh, while there's still, formally speaking, our legal challenge is outstanding, and probably will be right up until January 20th, is there a moment in which uh, some of the commentary I have made will become obsolete and business communities, international leaders, markets will all start operating without the asterisks uh, so they can dig into really trying to understand what a Biden administration is going to do for Canada and for the world. Thank you all um, for your expertise and your insight. You know, sometimes um, uh, interviews in journalism can be fraught, but I always said that it was a privilege actually to be able to have conversations. And uh, my great pleasure in the work that I do is listening to smart people talk. So I thank you all very much. You've been listening to Alison Smith, formerly of the CBC, in conversation with Jean Charest, Matthew Cumming, Martha Harrison, Awi Sinha, and Aliyah Ramji, all of McCarthy Tatro. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by the incomparable Chloe Thomas. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Kat Cleon, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tatro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. You can also find lots more content on our firm's COVID-19 Recovery Hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please wash your hands.